Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Today's guest, Dr. Ellen Van Oosten. I've really been looking forward to having you on, Ellen, because not just for the, the, the kindred spirits that we seem to share for the coaching practice and helping others uh, really maximize their purpose and their value and their skill, but you have such a unique background and experience uh, coming from the world of being a practitioner and now being a scholar practitioner where you've been able to do some research. And And, and Ellen's right currently, she's the associate professor in organizational behavior and faculty director for the executive education at Case Western Reserve University. But she's also the director of the coaching research lab, which is where she can take that scholar practitioner mindset and do collaboration and advanced coaching excellence for those of us out here in the world trying to make an impact in uh, the business community. She founded those uh, with college, that, that, that institute, the, the coaching lab with uh, a former, I guess, a previous guest, Dr. Boyatzis, Richard Boyatzis, as well as Melvin Smith. And I believe one of my favorite books, you also had a hand in, that we also featured on the show before that you co-wrote with those same two gentlemen, Helping People Change. And I can tell you, uh, listeners out there that I could spend the entire episode talking about Ellen's achievements, her accolades, and her experience, but you probably don't care. You probably care about how those experiences, achievements, and accolades mean something to you. So let's do that. Let's jump in. Ellen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's it's good to be here, and I'm glad we're not going to talk about all those things. That would be dreadful. Well, <laughs> I'm sure we're going to have a good conversation about uh, more interesting things. But thank you for the kind introduction. Yeah, yeah you're quite welcome. And uh, whenever I, I find someone like yourself who is just, you're, again, as I said at the top of the show, your, your track record, your experience, and really your heart. The thing that strikes me when I've talked with you before and what those who know you and who've been coached by you said, it's your heart for people and for seeing people change and for seeing people be able to discover things about themselves that can improve the way they can help other people. And I think that's what that's what speaks volumes to me about you and your character and your personality. So let's start where we start with all of our guests then. Where did that come from? So tell us a little bit about your why. How did you end up where you are today? What was some of those early influences that really drove those beliefs that led you to be this person today? That's great. So for me, I, I think I'll just go back to uh, starting off in, um, in college, which was in electrical engineering program at the University of Dayton. So I'm a Dayton flyer, which is uh, something I'm really proud of. I've had a great experience there, but really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I got out of um, uh, undergrad with an electrical engineering degree and went to work for General Electric and spent a lot of time in technical sales. And so what that meant is I was in manufacturing plants, a lot of factories, and I had an incredible opportunity to see organizations and to see businesses in particular and manufacturing specifically and how that worked, how it worked in terms of teams, how the management and leadership worked and so on. So I was just a sponge. And I noticed a number of things um, that were puzzling to me, um, how there wasn't like a whole lot of energy on the part of a lot of the employees that. Um, 
there was like the management didn't seem to always um, appreciate the employees, um, didn't seem like they really understood what they needed and so on. So I just kind of logged a, a number of things. For me personally, it wasn't really um, kind of stimulating work, not the work that was with the clients. I loved that but it was the work within my own organization. And in particular, I never really felt like my managers took any interest really in who I was. Um, so it was more kind of perfunctory. And I thought, this is fascinating. It seems like such a waste of opportunity because it wasn't just me. It was like my, my coworkers around me. And I would see people come and go then. I joined with a number of really, really smart, fascinating people. And within a couple of years, a lot of them had left. So from there, I thought there's something about this that's really interesting. And I um, ended up going back to get my MBA after sitting with a senior leader. I'll never forget it. He was the vice president of, of engineering and design at Cooper Tire. So that's how much I can remember this moment. And we were um, kind of selling, so to speak, our offering factory automation systems. And so I was working with him around that. And he pretty quickly said to me, I don't need to know anything else about your products. Your products are, have always been top quality. I need your help figuring out two things. Return on investment for if I invest in all this. And then can you help me influence the team down in Atlanta at a whole other plant to be okay with, to be open to using your products. And pretty quickly, I thought, you know, I, this is out of my league. I, I wasn't as equipped as I needed to be to have the business case for that or to help him from an influence perspective. And that's what drew me to, uh, to getting an MBA. That was a life-changing decision because I ended up at the Weatherhead School of Management at Case Western Reserve University in a class in my very first semester where I had a chance to think about what I really wanted to do or could do, what really inspired me in my life to think about my core values, uh, to think about my purpose and put it together in a paper. Um, and I agonized over that paper, um, which I'll come back to and why that's, that might be uh, um, timely for what I'm doing now. But the opportunity to think about uh, my life and my future is like a journey and then to create a plan around it, which is what I was able to do, set me in a whole nother direction. And then from there, I made a, a jump over to, um, to really leadership development work, worked for a retail organization. And there I worked with the senior leaders, territory leaders and regional managers, all around helping them to develop and to develop their teams. And we did a lot with 360 feedback and worked with them about uh, just effective ways to uh, motivate their teams. And that was really incredible work. Um, I had an opportunity after that to go back to the university and work for one of my professors and start up a whole unit called Customized Executive Programs. And so it was a neat opportunity to do a startup in a safe environment where we would go out and talk to businesses about what they were needing to do with uh, kind of like key key roles or key managers throughout the organization, what they needed to know, what they needed to learn, how they needed to develop. And I would then, with that information, work with faculty and we would customize different learning experiences for those teams. And through that, um, 
I had this ringside seat to be able to see how individuals, teams, and organizations really develop and change and the power in that, what becomes possible. I saw like managers and leaders just light up um, when they learned about how to read a um, income statement and they never really understood, you know, how to read those documents uh, that were um, uh, distributed inside the organization and so on. Uh, but through that, we also worked with those individuals to help them um, around becoming more emotionally intelligent and um, developing a plan for themselves and so on. And so from that, uh, that kind of um, kind of had a bug that got in me that I wanted to do more of that and had an opportunity then to uh, apply to a PhD program at our university and was accepted into that. So. So that's kind of a little bit of the, the journey of how it got me to, uh, to the academic side of things. And for the past seven years, I've been a faculty member at the Weatherhead School, working with MBA students, just like I was at one point, but also managers and leaders in organizations all around leadership development and coaching and um, ultimately kind of helping them become like the next best version of themselves. So really, really exciting work. So that's a great journey and one that was probably, you know, fraught with both learning experiences, successes and failures, but I can't let you completely off the hook yet because what I'm going to do before I want to pick up where you just left off, but before I'm going to rewind just a little bit. So you went to the University of Dayton. My wife, by the way, is a flyer. Um, So you went to the University of Dayton and you got an engineering degree. Is that, what, is that what you said, right? Was I listening? Was my active listening skills on there? Yes, your listening was so perfect. I'm going to rewind even before that. What shaped you into the type of person that wanted to go and be an engineer to get an engineering degree? That, that there's that, there's a dichotomy here that I'm interested in, is because we work with a lot of clients who are in different, really more of a transactional or or an analytical uh, roles, and I'm always fascinated by the mindset of an engineer or a CFO. So. Little girl Ellen grew up in this environment where she wanted to be an engineer. Tell me, tell us a little bit about that, because that's always a fascinating place for me. It was like, what led you to that point where you realized you wanted to be uh, an engineer? Yeah. Well, for me, um, at that point in time, and back, like if I rewind it back to high school, even, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do or to be. And just around that time, fields of engineering were opening up uh, for women. But I was strong in math and science, um, and that was a natural progression, as well as computer science or accounting. So I narrowed it down to these three fields, which clearly, in hindsight, are very different. And I didn't know a whole lot about any of them uh, at that point in time. There wasn't really the opportunity to scope that out or to do internships like there is now, I think. And... At the advice of college counselors and um, school counselors, um, I was encouraged to start off in engineering uh, because it would be um, a lot easier to start there and to switch out than to switch in. And so I took that advice and the first year to year, year and a half, um, the courses and the experience was not that different than my junior and senior year in high school because 
I went to a school that had um, was college, you know, preparatory in nature, and I was very well prepared, you know, for a lot of those math and science classes. However, I really didn't still see the connection to what I was doing and what I could do. And as I progressed through engineering, it was difficult for me to still see the connection because you end up in labs, you end up in, you um, end up, you know, learning about kind of very um, kind of abstract scientific uh, theories and whatnot. And for me, I couldn't see how this would help people. And I had an advisor who I belonged to or was a member of a um, women's sorority or women's engineering sorority there. And we had an advisor who was an engineering professor. And I was having a real crisis around, I don't think I could do this or should do this. I'm not sure this is for me. And in his office, after many different visits, I said, I I don't see how this is going to, to really lead to anything. And he said, ah, I think the issue is that you just can't see what this engineering degree can do. So from that moment, uh, he helped me explore internships. And an internship I was able to get was with GM. There's a GM plant, Delco Moraine. It was their break division. There's anybody listening who remembers that down there in Dayton. And I had an internship there for the summer between my junior and senior year. And I worked in the tool room. And the tool room was... um, you know, an interesting place. You had uh, folks who were uh, basically programming CNC machines. So we were producing different, um, different kind of um, bolts or or nuts or different things that were going to the machines. These are really small pieces that you would um, program into the uh, lathes. And the guys were um, union. And so they weren't allowed technically to have anybody else touch the machines. So here comes an intern. I'm not a union worker. And so they don't really have a whole lot for me to do. And the manager of the tool room was kind of a really crusty guy. Not a lot of conversation, not real interested. And so I just figured I'm going to just, I'm here for the summer. I might as well learn some things, right? So I just, in hindsight, try to be curious and respectful And um, within a short while, um, some of the the guys in the room, and they were all men, would say, well, just just wait till, you know, our manager leaves and we'll show you how to do this as long as you don't tell anybody. And so I learned how to program the CNC machines. And that was very cool. But what was even more interesting is I got to do different things out on the factory floor including just being out there. And I ended up discovering that I'm like a real uh, manufacturing nerd. Like I love being in the manufacturing plant and kind of like the presses and what they were making. And just that whole environment was fascinating for me. And so that really kind of um, lit up a curiosity and an interest for me. But I learned many years later that what was going on there is not so much that, you know, the engineering content wasn't as interesting. It's that I'm uh, much more of an applied learner. And so my learning style is such that if I don't see and can't apply something, it's hard for, the, for me to find meaning in it. Right. And so the, the way that the, my courses were being taught and my experience was just absent of that application. And so once I had it, once I could see, oh, 
this is how I can um, contribute. This is how this is meaningful. This is how what I do could be helpful to an organization. Then um, from there, it gave me a, a whole lot of like motivation to finish. And so, um, so that was basically it. It's um, kind of more of a, a journey of exploration more than anything else. Well, no, the reason I like to have people's stories unpacked a little further is because I think everyone listening, we've all had you know, a, a journey that's gone up and down since our childhood to today and life's experiences. And we learn from other people. And I'm always fascinated now as I know, cause I know what you do today is your, your relationships that you built through the years from, you know, from the time you're a child to the time you're today as a professional and in the coaching field, especially you'll start to learn that some people are, you know, more bent to leaning towards their IQ and others are more leaning. They bent, they're bent toward more of their EQ. They don't necessarily always know what they're you know, what they're defined as or what it means. And so you came up through a very IQ heavy engineering world, right? With a lot of folks who are very intellectual because everything was analytical in nature and, you know, processing systems, all of that stuff, right? But now today, here you are, this amazing change agent coach who has an engineering mind, but has this vision for folks EQ and their ability to recognize the emotional empathic side. In that journey, that you went on from college to today, where was your biggest aha where you started to recognize that IQ is great, but without the EQ and the self-awareness and the social intelligence it takes to be a good communicator to build healthy, effective relationships, you can't be an effective leader. Did that kind of, was there a light bulb moment or was it just kind of a rolling snowball of experiences that you picked up along that journey? Um, I think it's more of a rolling snowball. I love that a metaphor, Jeff, and that really sums it up. So it's not the kind of thing that I had one or two aha moments, but there was definitely some experiences that stand out for me in my memory. I remember uh, being young, around probably 12 years old, and I'm going to date myself here, but that was when we had these big phones, and the phones were landlines, and I was upstairs in my parents' bedroom on the landline. And I'd be on it for hours. And my mother would say, you know, like, get off the phone. Who are you talking to? And I would motion to her that it was my friend who was like really needing to talk to me. So my nickname for those years was Dear Abby. For those of you and your listeners who (laughs) know Dear Abby's column, because I would literally just be there not saying anything, but listening for quite a long period of time. So um, I think I just had some... Um, just kind of intuition about people's need to be heard and to have somebody they could share something like safely with. In other words, I'm a very good uh, listener and, and secret keeper. And so they, I think in hindsight, I had built trust that people knew they could share something with me and it wouldn't go anywhere. So fast forward um, through um, college in particular, and when I got out and worked for GE, there was um, kind of this sense I had as sales folks, we were spread out all over. So you were on the road quite a bit. Um, I would have the Northwest part of the state and be traveling, you know, most of the time in a small office with maybe four or five other folks doing the same thing in different territories. So you weren't really together much. And I was always trying to pull us together when we were in the office, usually on a Friday. So we'd be in the office together often on Fridays. And I would come up with different 
um, like team activities or things that that we could talk about, like best practices. Let's all get together and share how things went and so on. And I became really good friends with several of the, the guys. Again, these, these were all men and they would just tease me about, do we have to get together and do all this? Do we have to talk about this stuff? Right. I said, yes, because this is how we help each other. And so I was drawn to this, like the power of people coming together for shared learning would be another thing. And so it was through like the, the teasing and my instinct around it that I became very aware that there's something there because we then would walk away from those meetings and conversations, laughing a lot, by the way, which is key, uh, but also with some really good ideas that would help us in our respective work and respective territories. Isn't that like the point, right? That we're not in it alone. We really never are in whatever it is that we're doing alone. But that if we can come together and share what it is that's working, um, have some you know conversations around that, maybe help each other solve different sticky situations or problems, then um, a, a number of kind of really amazing things can happen. That wasn't what the management I worked for was interested in. And so that wasn't valued. That um, so the more of an independent um, approach to kind of go just go do your work and reach the goals that are set for you, kind of thing. It's not um, it's not a priority, and we wouldn't want you spending too much time kind of pulling people together. So I had this um, intuition about it, but I was not in the right environment for it, and I didn't know what to call it. And so it wasn't until my eyes got open to the whole field of I called it human resources, broadly speaking. It actually is organization development. And the, the field, the academic field, is organization behavior. Um, so that's really the space. And in, in our organization at the time, it just was kind of non-existent. But as I got exposed to other organizations, mostly through studying them um, in MBA school, I thought, okay, I need to be in that field. And I called that field human resources. But... Really, it was a piece of that field, which which is much more around human potential um, and learning and development. And that would be the organization development space. So that's a little bit kind of how I um, how I moved along the, the journey. And I use that word journey a lot because it really is yeah. for me like that. It's not always a path I set out on. It's more um, kind of like I'm, I'm moving along like a flowing river. <laughs> Oh, that's a, that's a good metaphor as well. So you've gone from being someone who is fascinated with manufacturing engineering to being someone who's fascinated with human engineering, <laughs> relationship yeah. engineering, right? Yep. And, and I, what I love about this concept is, uh, you know, we believe the research shows it as well that, you know, we're really oriented to self-preservation and the brain is wired for risk mitigation and, you know, all of those kind of innate instinctive behaviors of protectionism that we're wired to do. It's almost like many of us haven't really evolved past the cave um, in, in our relationships. And yet we're thrust into these almost what we perceive as risky relationships, right, with, with people in the workforce that causes many leaders to not dial up the EQ, not work on it, not develop it. And that really what I wanted to get into now is as you've done the research now, you've worked in the coaching lab, you see a lot of these leaders come in, you've worked and coached some of your master coach. What do you think is the biggest thing that prevents today's 
manager slash leader from recognizing that it's not just about cognitive intelligence. It's not just about performance metrics. It's not just about IQ. What prevents them from being willing to be vulnerable enough as a leader to be more empathetic, to recognize the need for that and the value it brings to performance? I think there's a couple of things that for me really are at the heart of it. And one of them is, these are in no particular order. One of them is that the world around us continually changes. And we need to recognize that it's changed and be able to adapt in our style. So a manager, you know, a leader needs to then adapt the way that he or she may have approached uh, managing and leading in the past is likely different. Why? Because it's, it's not the same set of circumstances, right? So you need to be able to acknowledge what's happening for the folks reporting to you, but also what's happening in the environment. So we can come back and talk about some of those examples in a second. But closely connected with that is self-awareness. And so how aware is the individual around how, how he or she comes across to others, how others experience them um, in their interactions and, you know, you know, what triggers them emotionally to be positive, like what brings them great joy, but also what is likely to um, create or unleash a lot of anxiety. Those are just a couple kind of um, bookends, right, as examples, but those those give you an idea of the kind of emotional self-awareness that is really critical. And I, a lot of people haven't done a lot of work, you know, in that, in that space. And then a third is more of a mindset and maybe a philosophy, and it's around uh, lifelong learning. So if an individual uh, doesn't see the need to continue learning and adapting, I think it's a lot harder for them to even appreciate that the, whatever they learned technically or functionally to do their job isn't enough. So the reality is, though, usually within just a couple of years out of whatever your kind of formal schooling is, some would suggest like six months out because of the speed, you know, of how things are changing and the amount of information that, that we now access. But let's just say, you know, it's, it's a short amount of time. Um, that training becomes obsolete. And so really this idea of like needing to be constantly um, open to learning and uh, realizing that you don't know it all, that actually it's not possible to know it all, um, it taps into also kind of that self-defense mechanism and ego that can get in the way. So those are a couple of factors that I find um, are really important and that, that we do a lot of work with when we um, are working particularly in coaching leaders and working with like groups of individuals from organizations who are in like mid to senior level management. Okay, so let's do a real play, a real play role play here. Not suggesting that I have issues with self awareness, but let's just say that I did hypothetically. Uh, my team's listening. Or, or you have a friend that does. I have a friend. Yeah, I have a friend <laughs> who I want to help give some advice to. Um, Absolutely. I, I, when you see these, because I think we we all have different personality types and styles and backgrounds, experiences which form who we are and all that kind of stuff, right? But for me as a leader in an organization, and you're, let's say that you're my coach, 
because you are right now in the session, and you rec- you recognize as a coach that I might not have the level of self-awareness that I need in order to be open to change. What what is it that you would do as a coach? And and I and this for the listeners, I want I want them to process what you how you answer this question because I want them to be able to take the information and apply it to themselves. And what would you do if you recognize someone had a lack of self-awareness? How could you get them out of that 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 space? Yeah. So let me offer this as a starting point: is that I, we don't normally think of it, and I wouldn't think of it with you, Jeff, in this way, as having a lack of self-awareness, but I think of it as um, an opportunity to continue to uh, broaden and deepen your self-awareness wherever anybody is. So in working with a coaching client, um, and so for listeners out there, wherever somebody is at this moment today is where they are. And so we, we start with that. And we start with a process always that is around helping them to discover some things around themselves. And we call that discovery of the ideal self. I don't always use that language, but that is essentially what it is. And let me explain what's underneath that, or if that's the umbrella, what's included. The ideal self is this um, image of ourselves. It's also an understanding of ourselves, of who we are at our very best. And appreciating, often kind of understanding is the first step. What is it that's important to us is something that not a lot of people have had a whole lot of practice doing. So some examples would be your core values. So I would start with my coaches, and we do this in leadership development all the time, as my colleagues do as well. What are your top 10 core values? And then can you distill those down for me to your top five? Can you um, not just name them in terms of a word, such as say health could be a top value or contribution to others could be a value. Family happiness, for instance, could be a value. Family security and so on and so on. And so I have them then define it in their own words. So can you not just name your values, but then define your values in your own word? There's no like perfect definition. What's most important is that somebody can not just clarify for themselves what their top five or so values are, but then describe them in their own words. Because what family happiness means to one person is often different than what it means to another. Other discoveries that I help people make, and not just me again, as part of our process, would be, uh, what would you say your core purpose is? So, so Jeff, for you, what's your, what's your core purpose in doing these fantastic podcasts you know, and all the work that you do? I know this is just one little piece of your constellation of activities, but why do we do what we do? Why do you do you know, what you do? And again, it's not the kind of question where you just rattle something off. You really need to stop and think about it. It's deeply reflective work. Um, we also are more playful with it too. So it's not always so like um, seemingly, um, you know, serious, but we'll talk about what's a fantasy job or a set of fantasy jobs that you might want to do. Or if you could experience and try anything in your lifetime, give me 27 things you would do. And people always say, why 27? Right? Well, that's to get you up and out of about 10, which is most people can rattle off about 10. But to push yourself to really start thinking about like, what would I really love to experience and try in my lifetime? Wow. You know, I have to stop and think about that. 
And so what, what we're helping people to do is from many different perspectives, um, really discover who they are now and what's important to them, but also what they deeply dream of and aspire for their future. And we have a colleague who helped us with our book. And thank you for mentioning that, the Helping People Change book. And she was one of our editors. And she said, you know, as I understand this more and more, she goes, it's almost like you're helping people excavate these aspects of themselves. So this, this visual of kind of this doing this inner excavating, I think is a powerful metaphor because we have to dig deep, you know, to, we, it's, we're the ones who um, know ourselves. So to be authentic, we have, we have to dig deep. So we help people figure a lot of that out and then articulate it and express it. So a whole nother dimension is the expression of it. And that is usually in words but can also be in images and sometimes both because some people think in pictures and that has more meaning for them. So that's just one example of a whole area of self-awareness. And then there's others, you know, we could work with emotional and social competence, for instance, and there we pull in different, we could pull in different instruments like survey instruments that you could complete as well as um, we do quite a lot of work with 360 degree feedback. So we would encourage folks to then invite others who know them to share their experiences with them via these surveys. And and then together, um, look at what that data is sharing. So that's a different set of, of, um, I guess, or a different area of self-awareness than the ones I just explained, but give you, you know, a couple of ideas. So does that help? Yeah, it's great. And a couple of things you said. So for those of who are listeners who are part of the Brain Trust family who've been clients of ours, they'll already really recognize we make everybody go through this exercise to discover their 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 why. We call it the my why story. And a lot of it, what you described, just reinforced why we have them do that. It's a really helpful exercise uh, for them because we really do believe that if you understand your why, that your what will only help you be more purposeful. And your what actually becomes less relevant because you're living through your why. So you, your journey can take you in, your river can take you through many different zip codes and it's okay. The other thing you said, and I, 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 I finally, this is it. This is the moment. I'm trying to figure out what I want to be known as. And based on your description, I want to be a behavioral archaeologist. That's it. it. Tell, Let's tell me it. about that. Well, you, you, right. it, it was you. You just said you do it. You help people do a kind of an archaeological dig on themselves, right? Well, that's it. I, I, we want to add this to the coaching institute, right? I want to. I want to. I want to get an honorary degree in behavioral archaeology. Can, can we do that? Can we? I love oh. that. I think we can do a lot. <laughs> let's, let's work on that together. <laughs> I love it. I love it because I think the uh, th- this is important because for me, when you think about you have to have a, a really good awareness of self in order to know what limitations or preventions or, pre, or things that are preventative that are preventing you from walking out your purpose. And what I found is your purpose is almost always, if not always, I hate to use absolutes, but has to be something that's designed to help other people. And in the end, the way we get most fulfillment is not how much we accomplished, but how much we helped others accomplish. And, and over and over and over again, I keep going back to this, we, we are in this constant battle, a tug of war between our own self-preservation and our own desire for affirmation and however we're wired for achievement. And yet it's never enough, right? You hear it and you see it over and over and over again. Those people almost always come to the conclusion 
that they want to leave a legacy that's helpful to others, no matter how much they accomplished. And so I, I ask these questions because all of us go through this. Some people realize it early in life. Other people, it takes them, their river has to go over a couple of cliffs, <laughs> right? With a large waterfall before they realize that, that that's, if they really want to be a great leader, it has to be less to do with them climbing the ladder and more to do with them under the bottom of the ladder, pushing others up the ladder. And when people make that switch, they, that's when they start to really come alive as a leader. Yeah. Is that what you, is, have you found that to be true? Absolutely. I, I completely agree with them. This idea of like climbing the ladder and that there's nothing wrong with it. And actually folks who are really high in achievement orientation, that for them is an aspect of their purpose. But then tagging onto what you shared, we would ask, well, the purpose for what? So if you want to climb the ladder, is your motivation to accomplish more results or is it power over others or what is it, you know, that you're trying to do? And that takes a while sometimes for people to really get, get to the crux of it. But when they can um, authentically, you know, identify what's most meaningful for them and what they value the most, um, then like they just really light up and it's, you know, work isn't drudgery, then work becomes a means to live out something that has deep significance, you know, for them. Um, but again, it's it's not something that we just say, okay, like tonight, spend a couple hours doing this and come back and tell me about it, right? It's a process and a process of reflection and a process of, of really considering um, what's most important to you. But you mentioned something about, you know, the work of leaders that reminded me of of something I think is true. And I found certainly my own practice and I teach it this way. And that is um, you need to know yourself well in order to lead others well. And the reason is they're looking to you, right? So they're, they're looking for you and following your leadership, but at a much more fundamental level, um, emotions in particular are contagious. And I know you've had other, my other colleagues on, um, in previous podcasts, so some others have addressed that directly. But we know that the extent to which the leader finds purpose, the leader feels fulfilled, the leader is able to really spread positive emotion and to value others and so on, then that becomes contagious. And so that's really important then to spread positive emotion in the organization for others to do the same. So you want this kind of cascading effect or ripple effect, but the ripple effect is like the leader is the stone in the water, right? We drop the stone and the ripples come out um, in rings around that point. And so we do a lot of work with leaders and especially the higher up one moves in an organization or the more people they directly and indirectly touch kind of like sphere of influence is larger. This becomes essential. You know, for them to really um, own, you know, the way that they're showing up and the way that they're treating people. Yeah, we love that. We talk a lot about that emotional contagion factor in the workplace, but also how critical it is to recognize in the 360 view of yourself that it's the same when you walk through the door at home, right? The, the, the stress that you carry, the way that you respond, the way that you communicate has direct implications on everyone in your sphere of influence, regardless of whether you're at work or at home. So I, I love that. And having the level of recognizing what I have found is like everybody inside Brain Trust, 
They all know that our, our purpose is very simple, to help individuals and organizations communicate with more purpose and more power and more impact. We are communication. We want everybody to be able to maximize the impact they have on the world through the way they communicate and help them do that. So everything we do is built around that. And so the key, I think, though, is I'm a very passionate person. I lead with passion. I lead with that why all the time. But if I don't make sure that everyone inside Brain Trust has the context to how their role supports that purpose, they might get caught on the wheel of transaction as opposed to that epiphany of relationship that we just impacted on a one-to-one level. Um, and, and as a leader, I have to remind myself every morning when I get up that it's not just about me fulfilling my purpose to help people communicate more purpose and more power and more impact, but I'm building a company where I want the individuals within the company to recognize that though they don't have Jeff's same set of skills and gifts and talents, they have their own unique set of skills and gifts and talents. And so how do I help them maximize those to feel fulfilled while we pursue this collective purpose? And that's a tough thing for leaders to do though, right? Because stress and the, you know, the demands of, of leadership and all those things can impede us. And we could go days and weeks and sometimes months without recognizing the potential negative impact we're having on our organizations by producing the opposite of that positive emotional contagion, right? Absolutely. And the key, one of the many keys in what you shared that I'd underline is how important it is to have a shared vision and a shared purpose and then shared values. So um, our colleagues um, at the Weatherhead School, including Richard Boyatzis, but also Kylie Roachford, Kylie's now at University of Utah, uh, did a study on relational climate. And so the relational climate, when it's characterized by shared vision, shared purpose, um, and shared values, it then uh, correlates to more productive outcomes, better outcomes in the team or in the organization. So it's at those different levels. And it makes a lot of sense when you stop and think about it, right? Because otherwise you'd have people going off doing their own thing. But as you pointed out, it's not a natural kind of go-to spot for a lot of leaders. They have to be very intentional about their own vision and their own values first and be able to then engage with others around creating a shared vision and shared purpose. And then uniting people around it, right? So reminding people around it, helping people to understand what those things are and how they do contribute to it so that that's important so people can see how it is that they um, are making a difference. Like you said, their roles are different than, say, yours um, at the top of the organization, but they still absolutely contribute in an important way. And so that's where um, a lot of times, you know, without that, individuals um, miss that opportunity or sense of really what they're doing, how that impacts, you know, the the greater work of the organization, but it becomes essential for them people to be engaged. So a lot of, there's been a lot of work right in the past 10 years or so around engagement and work engagement and companies are spending like millions of dollars on engagement surveys. And that's helpful and interesting. I think it's important information but what's at the core of it? It's about connection. It's about people really feeling connected, feeling understood, feeling valued. And so when you look at like, well, whose job is that? You could say everyone's, but really is for sure it's managers and leaders, right? Who have been individuals that look to them right. uh, and need that from them. 
Yeah, I always feel like context uh, precedes and amplifies clarity. And if you can provide people with that context and how it wraps around the vision, that's great. So we'll, uh, it, it, this is really, I feel like we've been talking for 15 minutes and we've really been going at it for a while now. This is great. So let's let's do this in the interest of time and respect for your time. Um, I know for a fact that people are listening today. There's going to be a couple leaders out there who are going to say, hey, what's this whole coaching research lab and, and how do I how do I get someone like Ellen to, how do I work with someone like her? To, can you give a little bit of color on how that works today and how individual uh, companies out there can send people to this lab and, and what it looks like? Sure, I'd love to. Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. So the Coaching Research Lab is something we're really proud of. We started it uh, six years ago and the backstory I think is important uh, because it tells you a little bit more about the work that that we're doing as well. So um, at the Weatherhead School in our Department of Organization Behavior, there are a number of us, Richard Boyatzis, Melvin Smith, a number of others who have been at the school and now are um, at other institutions, Scott Taylor, Angela Passarelli, uh, Kylie Roachford, uh, Tony Jack, who um, was a guest on your podcast, is actually there at Case, but just in another department. We also have a whole lot of um, fantastic doctoral students who we have the joy of working with. But a lot of the work that unites us is around helping individuals, teams, and organizations change in ways that is enduring. So change that's sticky. So this has been part of the, you know, the focus of our department for a lot of years. And Richard Boyatzis um, and his theory of intentional change is something that um, really has been a focal point, you know, for a lot of our work. Now, we teach that. We teach around intentional change. We coach to intentional change. And a number of folks in the past 15, 20 years have been conducting different studies. It took us a while to amass enough studies on part of all of our colleagues to contribute in what we felt was a meaningful way and, and publish a book, which is what, what we were able to do last year. A couple of years back, a number of us started to get some attention for that research. And um, the the fun story that I'd love to remember and to share is that um, our my colleague Angela Passarelli, who's now at College of Charleston, and myself um, had come back from a coaching conference and had uh, been recognized by the Institute of Coaching as um, having the top two um, kind of studies that won awards for their poster um, contest, so to speak. And we were described as being from the coaching laboratory at the Weatherhead School of Management. The, um, the woman who was the announcer, Susan David, who's phenomenal, um, herself is from Australia. So her pronunciation was really um, fantastic. So when I came back, I said, do we realize that we have the coach, a coaching laboratory here? I mean, that's what the world is recognizing. And that's really what kind of woke us up to sometimes your head's down and you're busy working. But we had something really special. And so we started an opportunity then to partner with organizations, to invite them in with us. And we created this lab as a collaborative for organizations who wish to support research, but also are uh, passionate, like we are, about advancing coaching excellence, understanding it, figuring it out, and advancing it. And so organizations can become members on an annual basis. And for that, uh, there's a number of different benefits, you know, that come with it, um, which I'm happy to talk with any of the listeners around. I think the essence that is um, often of interest to everybody is that we come together 
several different times throughout the year and in different ways. Organizations help us become and be more relevant in our research. They get access to rigorous research. And together, uh, we kind of pull on the best of our perspectives and experiences and strengths then to continue to conduct research that is both rigorous and relevant um, and applicable. So they get the, uh, like first dibs, you know, on any sort of research we're doing, but also they help to shape it and they hear what any sort of translation of other research that that from other colleagues elsewhere that we're summarizing. Um, and we've got a line into them that helps us really kind of truly understand what's happening in organizations. So um, it's a pretty intimate space. We have seven organizations right now, Smucker, Ford, Crown Equipment, um, Dealer Tire, Erie Insurance, and Fifth Third Bank. So fantastic organizations. We'd love to add a couple more to the mix, but we'll never be huge. You know, so it's a very intimate uh, space of shared learning and shared purpose to what we were talking about earlier. That's great. If you want to learn more, more, you know, we'll put the link in for folks if they want to learn more about that. And um, also, I want folks, the listeners, to go out and grab. If you haven't already done so, from our podcast with Richard, uh, go grab "Helping People Change." And you get you also co-wrote "Coaching for Lifelong Learning and Growth." I think that'd be another resource. And what about for people who might be interested in you just as an individual executive coach? Is that something that they can find more research? Where can they find more information out about that? Yes, absolutely. So through Weatherhead Executive Education, uh, that's it's an incredible partner to us and an extension of the Department of Organization Behavior. We have a whole lot of workshops. Coaching and emotional intelligence are two of the topics, but there's a ton. So that's a resource for everybody, broadly speaking, around leadership development. But we have coaching and coach certificate programs that we all teach in. And I had some of those up partner with Angela Passarelli as well. And then in addition, we have coaching services. And so organizations and individuals are able to um, just request different coaches. And we've got a great team there who helps with the matching and helps with the, um, the overall process. So we all coach. I'm an executive coach. And um, as is Melvin Smith, and I know uh, Richard Boyatzis, and we've got a whole group of really amazing coaches as well. So that's, that would be the, the way to do that. And I'm happy to, to kind of get those links so that you can post Great. them. The, if those listeners, the, the links are there on the landing page for the podcast. So feel free to check that out. Um, Ellen, this is, went by, I felt like it's flown by. I feel like I'm already smarter for having spent this hour with you. I hope the audience is, I'm sure the audience is as well. Please go out and check out these resources. Uh, it's really going to make you a better and more impactful, not only just communicator, but whether you're in a formal leadership position or not, you have influence over others. So you can learn and grow from a lot of what Ellen and the team have to offer up there. So thank you again very much for being a guest on the Driving Change podcast. It's been a joy. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Have a great day. You bet. You too. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, 
thought leaders and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.